beautiful prayer to sing today as we come once again to the Word of God, our Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer. Um, we get to talk to him, talk about him and to him again this morning as we look at Matthew. So if you'd remain standing, open your Bibles to Matthew once more. Matthew, we're in chapter 26, and today we'll be studying verses 36 to 46. We are in the midst of passion of Christ, and uh, today we get to look at the Garden of Gethsemane, which so much, so much is here today, and I hope that, well, we'll talk about it, but let's read it first. Matthew chapter 26, hear the word of the living God. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the living God, and may he write its truths upon our hearts this morning. Let us pray. Father, once again, we come to you, and we come humbled before this passage this morning, Lord. There is such a depth of awe and wonder here in this text that we won't really be able to grasp it, Lord. Perhaps in glory, but I, even then, I'm not sure, Lord. It's, it's so rich and amazing as we look to Jesus, and so I pray that You'd be with us during this hour, Lord, that you would help us to see him clearly today and that you would encourage our hearts with who he is and what he's done and how much he loves us. Lord, bless your people and use me, even with all my weaknesses, use me to encourage them and to show them Christ today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Charles Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers, they call them. He said these words once when he was talking about trying to proclaim Jesus Christ in a sermon. And he said, I'm never more vexed with myself than when I have done my very best to extol the dear name of the Lord Jesus. What is what it is, what is it but holding a candle to the sun? <laughs> I cannot speak as I would of him. The blaze of this sun blinds me. And I feel the weight of that this morning as we come to a passage that 
I've been studying now for a while, and I, and I, I'm, I'm struggling to, to grasp it, and, and I think we're going to leave here still struggling, and that's good. Uh, John MacArthur wrote these words. He said, even when one's best is done to study about and meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ, it becomes clear that the mystery is far too deep for human comprehension. And that's true. We know and, and we believe that he is fully God and, and, and also fully man. But to, to talk about that and to state that in a way that, that we can grasp and understand in any form of, of clear comprehension where we go away thinking, okay, I got that figured out, is just not, it's, it's far beyond our human capabilities. So we approach the text today with humility, with awe, with reverence. As we're following the Lord on the road to the cross, we're going to get to the cross in December, Lord willing. But tonight, or today, we're, we're still in the midst of Passion Week. It's probably near midnight on Thursday of Passover week in A.D. 33. Jesus' three years of ministry were completed. He had preached his last public sermon. He performed his last miracle. He'd also celebrated the last Passover with his disciples, as we saw last week. But infinitely more important than that, he has now become the Passover lamb, the perfect and only sacrifice for our sins. And so as we look further into our Lord's last night, again, remember, these are the, the last few moments before his death, the last few hours before his death. We come to this very holy moment, very sacred moment in his life. It's a powerful moment in his life and ministry as we glimpse into this divine human agony that he experiences before the cross. I think of the hymn off the top of my head, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Isaiah predicted that Messiah would be this man of sorrows. He would be acquainted with grief. But the sorrow he experiences on this night in the Garden of Gethsemane is deeper than any sorrow that he had yet experienced. He had wept at the grave of Lazarus. He'd experienced sorrow through his life, but the sorrow he's about to go through is like none other. And so we come to this text I'm going to point it out in five different scenes this morning. The first is the scene of sorrow. The scene of sorrow, if we look back at verse 36, we read again, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, the, it's, a, it's a form of a Hebrew word. Actually, Gethsemanim is the Hebrew word. It's actually easier to say in Hebrew than English, I think. It means literally olive press or oil press. And so it was situated on the Mount of Olives, probably in an orchard of olive trees where there was an olive press located. And it's interesting to consider the scene where God in, institutes this, this suffering moment, this, this moment of sorrow for, for the Messiah in the place of the olive press. 
you think of the importance of oil and olive oil throughout the scriptures, the anointing of kings, the, the healing of wounds, and here is Jesus in the midst of, of the olive press. And it's interesting to, to know when it comes to making olive oil that, that it's not just something that is squeezed. You don't just squeeze the olive because the, the best oil actually comes from the pit in the middle. And in order to, to get the oil out of that pit, it has to be completely crushed. And so it's pressed and it's crushed. And out of that comes beauty. Jesus brings with him the disciples to the olive press, to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37 says, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now these words in the English probably don't do enough justice, but it's a, they're, they're very similar words, but it, it, it shows you it, by repetition the depth of what he's going through in this moment. So he brings with him the 11. You remember Judas is already gone. He's going, getting ready to betray him. We'll see that's very soon. And he's got the 11 with him, and he brings them up to the Mount of Olives, and then, and then he separates just the three. He's done this before, hasn't he? He had his, his three, his three closest, Peter, James, and John, the two sons of Zebedee. They were the three that he took with him to the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was transfigured before them, them and they saw his glory. And Moses and Elijah, and they saw this amazing event, and now he brings them ever closer even to, to this another amazing event, this time not to see his glory in a sense, but to see his suffering, to see his sorrow, to see the heart of the man, Jesus Christ. The words sorrowful and, and troubled, it, it has the connotation of deep sorrow. Not just a, an easy, this is a deep sorrow. This is an anguish, a, a grinding anguish of grief. And, and it speaks of being overwhelmed in such a way that you're, you're virtually astonished. <coughs> you, you, can't, you can't comprehend. It's just, it's just an astonishment that is intense. And so he's there. He tells them in the midst of his sorrow, you, you sit here while I go over there and pray. We're told it was about a stone's throw away, so it wasn't that far, maybe 10 feet or so. He tells his disciples here then to remain here and watch with me. It's interesting to note that in the midst of Jesus' deep sorrow, where is his mind going? He's not just making up these words. He's recalling actually Scripture. This is something that he had learned since boyhood. He, he's bringing us back to Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And we're going to see him walk through, really, this, this psalm together where he ends in this hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And this is, it, it's an interesting thought about why this sorrow because it's not as if Jesus didn't know what was coming. He's been telling them all along, hasn't he? I'm going to die. He's been sharing. It's not a secret. He's been letting him know. He, he actually says it in John, John 12, 27. He's talking about his soul being troubled. Why? He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Thank you, brother. But for this purpose... 
I have come to this hour. So he knows his purpose, doesn't he? He's not shocked and surprised at it, and yet look at the, the sorrow. This, the, grim, the grim reality of what's in front of him has caused him to shake and tremor, to be in such a depth of sorrow. And I don't know about you, but it's hard to begin to reconcile this in my thinking and mind sometimes because just over the last weeks, how, how often have we talked about how this is the plan of God being walked out? This is the sovereign plan of God. Not nothing new. This was, this was his plan from before the foundation of the world. And so what's going on? Why is he so in the depths of grief? Is, is he faking? Is he, is he a drama, being dramatic for, for, for fictional literature or something? Certainly not. The mere thought of that is actually ridiculous because the grim realism of Gethsemane is actually a beautiful proof of, of the historicity of the Gospels. The early church the, the, would have never made this up about Jesus. They never would have made him look this weak and fearful and, and trembling, make him appear as if he's struggling here, un, unsure, even afraid. They wouldn't have painted him in such a light, let alone themselves, because we're going to find out in a little bit, where are they? They're sleeping. So all of this just shows the historicity of, of the reality of what's happening in the garden. You see this deep sorrow that Jesus is going in through in the depth of his soul, very sorrowful even to death. And yet out of that, we're going to see this beautiful prayer, point two of submission. We're going to see the submission of, of Christ, the surrendering of Christ. Again, the Lord had already told his disciples many times over the past year that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested, and he was going to be killed. And so here he is. He's come into Jerusalem. He's entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in a way designated to, to throw the gauntlet down to the religious leaders, right? To, to stoke them and to provoke them in their plans to seek his death. They'd wanted to kill him before, but it wasn't the right time. It wasn't his time. This was his time, and he comes in lighting the fire. And it's, it's, it's exploding in just a week. He knew what was coming. His public teaching during the days of, of the Passion Week was, was so offensive to the religious leaders, so to, to provoke them. He wasn't preventing it. He wasn't trying to stop it. He, he was actually pushing it along. Why? He had come into the world for precisely this, to, to give his life, not to have it taken, to give his life, to lay it down of his own accord. And so this passage has often troubled and surprised readers of the gospel because you, you see that so clearly throughout the gospels, and then you come to this moment where it seems as if, did he, did he forget that? Is he not remembering this is the plan of God? Why is he seemingly saying, take it away? Is it, is it possible to not have to go through this plan from the foundation of the world? It says in verse 39, and going a little farther. Again, a little farther suggests that he's within earshot of the disciples. How else would they have known what he prayed? Perhaps he might have told them later on after the resurrection, but I believe he's close enough 
where they hear his agony. They hear his prayer. He goes a little further. He he falls on his face. And he prays. It's interesting. Matthew doesn't note this, but Mark notes and 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 uh, this this account is in Mark and it's in Luke. And um, and and as we look at Mark's account, which is helpful because Mark uh, tradition says Mark's gospel was primarily sourced from Peter. He sat down and with these eyewitnesses like Peter and tell me what happened. Peter's right there. And in Mark's gospel, he writes that Jesus fell in the imperfect tense which means it was something that kept happening. He kept falling, and he kept praying. It's, it, you ever been in such an overwhelming, agonizing place that you just can't stand anymore? You collapse under the weight of the sorrow. He's doing this. He's falling on his face, also a sign of humility, of prostration before the Lord, but perhaps because he just can't contain the sorrow that, that he's in the midst of feeling right now. He falls on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This was a real request. This wasn't some made-up, dramatic act of the Savior. He's feeling a depth of sorrow that he is going to his father in this conversation between father and son with a real petition, a real request based on his real deep sorrow in his his depth of humanity. And he prays. And listen, this wasn't a new prayer for him. Remember when the disciples asked him, teach us to pray? And he taught him to pray. And part of that teaching to prayer, to pray was this prayer, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he comes and he lays it down, his request. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do you see the depth of surrender? Do you see the depth of submission to the will of the Father? He is saying in my desire, I, I, I'm so filled with sorrow. I, I'm dreading so deeply what's ahead of me. Is there any other way? And he prays to the Father. In verse 42, We see that again for the second time he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now I believe that the recording of the prayer that we have is is probably not the whole prayer. He's praying and certainly they're they're penning the things that we need to understand and hear from his prayer, but but he's in laboring in prayer for quite some time. And then, and then we're going to see in a minute, he comes back to the disciples, and then he goes back again the second time, and he's praying. And what's happening is he's continuing in his prayer is something is happening with him and his father. And do you see a sense of growing resignation to the will of the father, even in verse 42? He comes back the second time, and he's, look at the wording. It's different. My father, if this cannot pass 
as if he, he's understanding from the Father. No, you must go through this, son. This is something, there, there, there's, there is no other possible way. And he comes to this point of, of submission to the Father of, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, again, your will be done, which was the first prayer in the first place. Lord, I, I, I don't want to, if there's another way, let's do that. But, but Lord, I'm coming back again, Father, I'm coming back again. And if this is the way it is, then your will be done. And then in verse 44, it says, after spending some words with the disciples again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. The heart of submission to the Father is glorious and beautiful. This is the heart of prayer that we must learn as well. We can learn much from Jesus here. We can learn as Paul learned. That when we face suffering, go to him and go to him with bold faith and go to him with your requests and lay it out before him. But just as Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, it says three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. He was talking about his thorn in the flesh, this infirmity, this this whatever it was that was deeply hurting him. He said, I went to God three times just like Christ did. I kept going back and I kept going back and I went a third time that it should leave me. But God said this to me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. How beautiful to follow the road of Christ. How beautiful to have a submissive heart. But yet, even though Christ is our example here, even though he's He's, he's, he's the one we should be looking to and following. There's so much more going on here than just a lesson on prayer for us. What's going on here? This is, this is mystery, friends. There's no psychological explanations for, for Gethsemane. No, no master of human behavior can explain this to us. It's like a riddle that no human being can solve. See, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear, right? And Jesus is the only one who ever loved perfectly, loved both God and man. But never was a man as afraid as Jesus was that night in the olive press. Martin Luther said this, reminding us of this. He said, no man ever feared death like this man. Surely other men have faced death with greater poise than Jesus did that night. You've read the stories of martyrs singing as their flames are consuming their body. You've read the story of, of bold and courageous men who look death in the face with a smile and say, bring it on. Human psychology, human experience will not explain what's happening here in Gethsemane. It's a mystery. Luther says that Jesus' requests to his father, take this cup from me, are the most astonishing words in the Bible. Why did he say that? He said that because he appreciated the mystery, the impenetrable and, and, and imponderable nature of this moment in the Savior's life. And it's worth pausing to consider, do we really even grasp any of this? How little we understand of the experience of Christ 
late Thursday night in the Olive Grove. Herman Bavink, who's a fantastic Dutch theologian, wrote a masterful series of theology books called Reformed Dogmatics. And in that series of theology books, he writes this mystery is the vital element of dogmatics or of doctrine. The idea that the believer would be able to understand and comprehend intellectually the revealed mysteries is unscriptural. On the contrary, the truth which God has revealed concerning himself in nature and scripture far surpasses human conception and comprehension. Oh, there is mystery here, and it's deep. I'm not sure what the ordinary reader of this gospel thinks when he reads it, but I'm baffled. I'm always baffled when I look at the person of Christ. I have those mind-blowing moments where you just want to explode. You feel like your head's going to explode when you consider even the very person, the mystery of the person of Christ, of his God in human flesh. God in in human flesh. It's It's an amazing mystery. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, two two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, God and man, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition or confusion, which person is very God and very man. Pause and think about that for a moment. He didn't. He didn't change into man, the eternal son of God, the third, the second person of the Trinity became man. He took upon flesh upon himself. He added it to himself. And he has this nature, this nat- these two natures that are inseparably joined in the one person of Christ. It's an amazing thing. And so what's so amazing is that when we see this, we see the God-man, and then we come to the garden and we see him on his face, and we see him stumbling, and we see him falling, and we see him praying, Lord, if there's any way, any way different, let there be. But your will be done. And when I read this passage, I'm, I'm so baffled Because I see the depths of the humanity here, but I struggle because I know he's the God-man. He's in prayer, right? Something only men do. God doesn't pray because God has no one to pray to. There's no one above himself. He's seeking help from his heavenly father. He's asked to be released if some, such a thing could be possible from the assignment that he was given to redeem his people from their sins. It's an amazing depth of, of, of mystery in what's happening here. Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, who came into the world, is now as a man, asking to be released from him as his assignment. 
the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God struggling. How do we make sense of this? I can't explain it intellectually to you. No one can begin to explain the depths of the effects of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God also becoming at the same, and at the same time genuine, authentic human being with all the, the limitations and, and weaknesses of humanity except for sin. How did that work? How did that function? It's hard to grasp. And if you think you can explain it, we can try, and, and we do, in our human finiteness. But there's always an element of mystery left there, isn't there? And it's amazing to think about that our salvation required something so phenomenal that even the best understanding of the Word of God doesn't comprehend the depths of it. It's so wonderful that only God himself fully understands it. And that's a part of what's happening here in the garden. Thirdly, we also see in the midst of this struggle of the Savior, we see the depth of human weakness in the disciples. Number three, we see sleep. We see sleep. <laughs> well, what's wrong with sleep, Brian? Nothing. <laughs> it's actually a gift. It's normal. And isn't that something that just talks, shouts loudly our creatureliness, that every day, somewhere in the 24-hour period, your body needs a complete shutdown where you're unconscious for at least a good number of hours, where you're about as good as dead for those six to eight hours or so. And it's a daily reminder of who we really are. Now, we're creature. We're, we're the created, not the creators. And we forget that so often, don't we? We walk around like we own the joint. And yet you're going to have to, like a little baby, go to sleep tonight. It's a beautiful reminder of who we are. Well, Peter, James, and John, here they are, the Lord's inner circle, his, his closest friends to Jesus. They're, they're there. They're the ones who'd been boasting. Remember last week, Pastor David shared with us, boasting about their loyalty. Peter, I would never deny you. Even if everyone leaves you, I'm with you, God. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm not leaving your side. I'll fight for you. <laughs> and we all know what's coming in just a few hours, right? Well, here is the beginning of their weakness even more. In verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Isn't it interesting that he, he addresses Peter, the one who was so brave, so much bravado just a little bit before in the midst of the supper. So he, he's over there praying. Think about this. He's over there 10 feet away calling out to his father, agonizing, stumbling, falling. Luke tells us sweating as great drops of blood. And he asks them, 
Just watch with me. Here's all I'm asking of you. Just stay awake. I just need you here. You're my friends. And, I, and I'm going through the, the, the trial of all trials right now. And I just need you to be with me. And they lay their heads down and go to sleep. Sleep certainly is a gift. Scripture tells us that, but it's also, Scripture points out, a sign of laziness, of sloth, of a lack of vigilance. It's, it's expressed in Scripture as, a, as a, a, a moral failure, spiritual failure. It's used as a metaphor for such. The call to wake up is a regular call that we hear throughout Scripture. The psalmist in Psalm 132 understands that the faithful know when when there's a time to sleep and then when there's not. And so because they're so close to Jesus and they hear the prayer and they see the agony, this act of sleeping becomes more disreputable, this disloyalty, the, the failure of their compassion for not only their Lord but their friend is glaring. And so Jesus tells them in verse 41, watch and pray. He'd already told them, sit and watch with me while I go pray. Now he tells them, you need to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The first call was for him, would you just be with me? Just watch with me. Now he sees them sleeping, slumbering, almost this warning of, I I know what's ahead for you guys. You need to be the ones watching and praying. Jesus remains the good shepherd. In the deepest hour of his sorrow, he's caring for them once again. He tells them the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh. Not not the body, speaking of our, our hands and our feet. Yes, that's certainly true and appropriate. And there are times where, where the, 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 the flesh, the bodily flesh, leads us to sin. And, and that's a little more pronounced. But the flesh in Scripture speaks of a much deeper understanding of this sinful desires, the sinfulness of, our, of ourselves, of who we are. And so there's this, this call, an echo from the Lord's Prayer once again, where he prays, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They must pray this prayer, and they must mean it. Verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Jesus had gone away to pray. He comes back. They're sleeping. He tells them, watch and pray. The flesh is weak. The spirit's willing. You'll have help when you need Gethsemane. And the truth is this. You and I have never had a personal Gethsemane. We've had sorrow. But in this moment, this is Christ's and Christ's alone to face. We can take great comfort in knowing that he has suffered because, and he he understands. We see that in Hebrews, right? In Hebrews 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partakes of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
this prospect on other occasions. We have a great temptation of the Lord by the devil at the outset of his ministry. We studied that months ago, immediately following his baptism by John. And then we have this great temptation at the very end, in between, no doubt. He, he was tempted in many areas, but there was nothing like this. And what was unique about this? And here it is. Here's the key to the whole passage. It's the cup. The cup is the key. He said, if it is all possible, let this cup pass from me. What's he talking about? He's not dying a martyr. He's dying as a substitute. The cup was what the Old Testament used, the language that, the, that was used to speak of judgment and wrath of a holy God. Judgment and wrath upon sin. Psalm 75 says, for in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine. Can you picture it? It's, it's so uh, toxic, if you will. It's, 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 it's fuming. It's foaming. It's well mixed. And he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Who's it for? It's for the wicked. It's for the sinners. It's for the sinful. All throughout, you read Isaiah, read Jeremiah. Old Testament uses this language constantly, this, this picture of this cup of wrath that's waiting for the sinner. And so the reason Jesus was struggling, I believe, so deeply here is because it's all about drinking the cup, which was substitution. You see, that cup is for me. It's for my sin. As a sinner, it's for me to drink. It's for you to drink. The wrath, the judgment, the punishment, the intensity of it. It's well-deserving for the sinner. But what's happening in the cross is substitutionary wrath-bearing in order to accomplish propitiation, which is a big biblical word, but it's there. It's a good word to learn. Propitiation, it means to appease the wrath of God. It's where we see in Romans 3.25 that, that, God, that uh, Jesus put, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's all over scripture. So, so what is Jesus doing in the garden? What is he doing on the cross? What is he doing in all of it? He's not giving us a good example. He's not just showing us what love looks like. Is that true? Is he a good example? Yes. Is he showing us love? Yes. But it's so much deeper than that. The cross is substitution. The cross is the fact that in our place, Jesus died. That in my place, your place, think of it, Jesus died as the Father took the cup of his unmixed wrath and put it up to the lips of his own son, and he drank it, all of it. Not one drop was empty and left. Drinking the cup, this dying a substitutionary death, that is the reason that he came into the world. And that helps us understand then why such sorrow and such agony. And the biggest reason is one other S word, and it's sin. The depths of sin 
understand that was happening in this taking on of the cup. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, was to be made sin for you and me. Why would he be so troubled? And I say that Jesus' prayer to remove the cup from him is the very thing that demonstrates his perfect purity, his perfect holiness, his own perfect heart and soul. And if Jesus is truly the holy, sinless, spotless Son of God in perfect purity, the very idea of drinking that cup caused his own holy soil soul to recoil and so what else could he have prayed and see we don't understand that we don't understand that i don't understand that because we're sinful what else could he have prayed Every effort you make to minimize or to, excuse me, to understand the results in our minimizing what the Lord faced and feared and eventually endured. See, you can't understand Gethsemane because you don't understand or grasp your own sin and have very little grasp of the wrath of God against sin and the hatred of God for sin. And how do I know that? Because you still sin. And I still sin. And it's easy for us to look at that cup of wrath and say, and, and, and point towards Hamas terrorists and say, oh yeah, wrathful, get them, drink it. But we don't look at our lack of love or our ungratefulness or moments of failure to trust the Lord as worthy of drinking that cup. And because we don't understand the depths of sin, we have trouble grasping why Jesus was so sorrowful. We never see our sin as God sees it. We should grow in that. Are you as revolted by your sin as God? Does it make you as angry as it does God? The thought of bearing it, does it make you recoil? Do you overlook it as if, oh, it's just a little mistake? The reason Jesus was in such agony and pain was because as the perfect holy son of God, he knew exactly what he was putting on when he took the robe off of my shoulders and wrapped himself in it and received the punishment that I deserve. This is salvation. This is glory. This is beauty. Because as he takes my robe of sin and filth and wraps himself in it, he takes his perfect spotless robe 
and puts it on me and you. And you're clothed in righteousness. And so there's, there's not much left to do when you hear that, but to repent and rejoice. Turn from your sin. Don't make friends with it. Don't accommodate it. Don't see it as just a little thing. Jesus felt the fullness of what that sin meant. And that's what Gethsemane was about. And as we see him meeting with the Father and the Son, excuse me, the Father and the Son meeting over, over the realities that they alone fully grasp and understand. That our salvation is not our achievement. And that it's, it's so much God's gift to us that we can't even begin to understand how it was achieved or what it, was, what it really required. And that the beauty of Gethsemane is this, that our salvation in a, great, in a big way was secured. When Jesus got up that third time from the olive press and saw those torches coming up the hill and his face was set to say, I'm walking out the will of the Father. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.